Welcome to the University of Birmingham's Fantastic Research and Where to Find It series. Each episode will feature two experts discussing areas of their research that relate to subjects explored in the films based on the work of author J.K. Rowling. Today's episode will feature experts from the Department of Film, and they will be discussing why these films are such a phenomenon. I'm Dr. Catherine Lester. I'm a lecturer in Film and Television Studies here at the University of Birmingham. And I'm James Walters. Um, I'm a reader in Film and Television Studies, also here at the University of Birmingham. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about what each of us do in our respective jobs, and particularly what we research and what we look at. Do you want to tell us a bit about yours, Kat? I am a researcher uh, in film studies, and particularly I look at the areas of the horror genre and children's cinema and television, and particularly the ways that those two things overlap and the intersections between them. Um, so in other words, horror films made for children. And what are you working on at the moment? At the moment, I'm working on turning my PhD thesis, which was on children's horror films, into a book. And that's going to look at the history of children's horror films in Hollywood cinema. It will also outline some of the main characteristics of children's horror films. And in particular, I'm interested in thinking about how we can identify children's horror, considering that children needed to be protected from horror, and yet there are these films which are horror, which are scary for children. So how can horror films both be suitable for children and yet also scary enough to be identifiable as part of the horror genre? But we both quite like the idea of children being scared, so that's, that's what yes, I'm saying. Yes, within yeah. reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some, something I have to qualify sometimes is that I don't scare children for my job. I just think about children being scared. I think that's good as an opener, just <laughs> yeah. generally in conversation, yeah. that you're interested in children's horror, but not interested in children being horrified by us, I think is a, a exactly. key distinction. We've both kind of got a shared interest, although I don't think either of us have ever written about the Harry Potter films or Fantastic Beasts or anything like that. But it's kind of a series that touches on what we're both interested in in different ways. And it occurs to me, actually, that there are bits, even in the Harry Potter series, that are probably slightly more horror-based when they're realised on screen than perhaps when they're on the page. Absolutely. Both the books and the films are very much full of um, horrific or gothic creatures and moments. And it's absolutely possible that some of those moments might become even more scary when they're seen on the screen. On the other hand, it could be argued the other way, that it's more scary um, when you're just left to imagine what is on the page, um, which could end up being far more frightening than anything special effects could yes. create. Yes, because Voldemort is scarier on the page, I think, than the actual um, Ray Fiennes version of him. That I don't, You must have seen the memes and things of Voldemort um, being funny. There's, there's lots of that sort of yeah. knocking around. I do enjoy Ray Fine's performance precisely because of that, though, because he always looks like he's having such a good time <laughs> being an evil lord. Yes, yeah. somebody really enjoying their job, which is always yeah. pleasing to see on screen, I think. A professional dedication that is joyful. And that can also make the character himself scary, because there is something... The fact that he's finding so much pleasure in 
terrorising people in itself is frightening. So it's kind of performance bringing it alive in a different way. So not being tied to the, the, the book that it's based on, but actually taking a different direction with it, which is quite unusual for those films because most of it is a fairly steady version of what's on the page. They're quite careful to reproduce almost exactly, I think, what was... I mean, obviously, she was exec producer, presumably, on, on some of so. it, yeah. which, which kind of helped. Um, but it's kind of gone in a different direction now with um, the Fantastic Beasts films, which we're coming up... When we're talking about this, we're coming up to the second one. And that seems to... Because it's an original work it's not based on a a novel before it but it seems to be treading that line between horror and fantasy more self-consciously I think and using I think using visual effects more kind of horrifically in terms I'm thinking about when the um in the first one the the troubled um uh, the boy that's got the the, yes the thing um (laughs) what's he got I think um I think it's something like an obscura it's something a bit like that yeah it's this idea that he has um repressed his magical ability and then it kind of bursts out as this kind of evil yeah smoke thing and like that bursting out is visually created in quite a disturbing way but also there's no safety net of having read the thing before and and knowing that that's going to come so I remember that being being quite a scary Mm. moment for for kids when certainly when I I saw it the fact that it's not based on a book or at least not a narrative book because of course it was based on this um novella kind of thing that Rowling released um so it's basically a textbook that the that the students use in Harry Potter, but there's no story to it. And I wonder if that signifies a change in address. You have, um, it's not based on a sort of traditional children's book. It's also focusing on adult characters um, in Fantastic Beasts, whereas the books, the Harry Potter books were about children predominantly. And maybe that change in the effects and the increased use of horror in Fantastic Beasts signifies that, that shift as well. Yeah, uh, so it almost gives it license to push things a little bit further because you've got that those adult characters in there. And I guess there are a couple of child characters, but they're slightly protected from... It's not like you've got a wizarding school. They all refer back to their wizarding school uh, as something that's very much gone into the past. Mm. Um, and it would be interesting to see as they kind of go on whether that's a trajectory that they continue to follow because... It's almost a bit like the Star Wars prequels in a way that we're going, we're heading towards a bad thing rather than heading towards, as far as I can see, heading towards a good thing because there's going to be a big battle at the end of it, I presume, mm. um, if what she is suggesting is true. And the fact that you have adult characters involved in it as well suggests kind of a more sophisticated approach. So I wonder how child audiences might kind of find that whole thing we can't possibly know I suppose is the answer yeah and there is something I think is quite strange about Fantastic Beasts is that the title of it Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them implies something much more child friendly that there's just going to be this array of amazing magical creatures um, and that the new Scamander character played by Eddie Redmayne is a kind of magical Dr. Doolittle but the films themselves themselves seem to kind of sideline the Fantastic Beasts somewhat in favour of this other story, which is something I find quite odd. Yeah, it's sort of hemming in that other narrative 
into the title. And visually, his Fantastic Beasts are kept in his suitcase. suitcase. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a suitcase, isn't it? Um, and that seems to visually and kind of thematically keep it under lock and key. And actually, I really like those sequences where he's moving through the different environments and introducing the um, the non-magical character to these different environments. There seemed to be more potential in that. But it was kind of an irony because it's contained so closely within mm. that space. I think that that scene was one of the more popular scenes from the film, at least from what I can tell from having spoken to people. And I think what you're saying about how it's, he's introducing the non-magical character to these things, it recaptures some of that magic from the first Harry Potter book and film, which is that we as non-magical people, the audience, um, along with Harry, are being introduced to this magical world for the first time. Um, and we really get that in miniature in that sequence where they go into the TARDIS sort of suitcase thing and see all of the magical creatures. Because that's a device that she's using that we get in lots of other fantasy novels and fantasy films where you have a character that knows nothing about the environment and they become the kind of cipher for for the reader, which we didn't have any kind of character like that in Harry Potter as far as I can see. In fact, the muggles in Harry Potter just seem to be confused and quite insignificant. Yeah. Or very horrible. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm trying to think of any that are significant enough and nice mm. but it's interesting that the non-magical character the nomad in, in fantastic beasts has to be also innocent and childlike and filled with wonder and kind of amazed at what's going on and not outraged and scandalized that there's a whole society of powerful individuals that are reshaping everybody's perception of everything all of the time because you could spin fantastic beasts and say this is about conspiracy and control and deviousness. I mean, I'm not surprised mm. they didn't go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't really do that after the popularity of the Harry Potter things to then just go in a completely different direction. Um, That'd be fair. Hey, kids, yeah. here's another way of thinking about this. <laughs> that actually, how did you never know that this was going on? So it, he kind of has to be, I think, in love with the idea of it and in love with a character from it to to create that link so this is something that Rowling does a fair bit actually is to just sidestep the more problematic issues um, in Harry Potter and now in Fantastic Beasts as well which kind of brings us on to thinking about these worlds as authored and as selective and as representative because you must find this with horror and children's horror that as as genres, they're just so wide and diverse, and people have such particular tastes within them that it really depends on authorship and you know screenwriting and all of those things to to skew it in a particular way. It's definitely very interesting that Rowling is screenwriting these these films herself, which is not something that she had done before. Um, and she's not working off of a novel, it's not another screenwriter working off of a novel. And there are debates as to whether her screenwriting is maybe as good as her novels. Yeah. But lots of it doesn't make sense in the books. I mean, kind of, you have to slightly half close your eyes to make it coherent because, you know, there's bits and pieces that don't quite match up. She's set herself quite a task as a screenwriter, hasn't she? Because she's got 
five of these. She's committed to five. Yeah. yeah. And then you sort of think, well, how many more other versions of that world might be found in the future? And I don't know. I kind of feel that for a lot of Harry Potter fans, it wasn't complete when the books finished and when the films finished, that there was a real appetite to explore that world again. Um, But at the same time, I don't know if it's now become bound up in the branding and the kind of commercialisation of children's experience of fantasy literature, fantasy film, and even fantasy horror. I wonder if that point where they split the last book into two and realised that you could make double the money if you do that. And then we get The Hobbit kind of spread into three films from something that's actually a very slim volume um, in reality. Whether actually this is now so caught up in a commercialised industry that um, whether we might reach a saturation on some of these texts, I don't know. That's definitely a concern for me, I think. And of course, we've also got the play, The Cursed Child, which which is two plays, essentially, that you have to see back-to-back, which I did do. Yeah. It was a slog, but I really enjoyed it. Can something be a slog if you enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah, there were breaks. Um, But for me, actually, speaking of the play, I do actually find the the plays to be um, a bit more successful for me than um, some of these other spin-offs like Fantastic Beasts. And I think that's partly to do with... I don't know if it's got anything to do with the fact that J.K. Rowling didn't actually write the play. Mm. But um, it's that idea of seeing this Harry Potter universe in a different context, a different medium, in the theatre. And with Fantastic Beasts, I kind of get the sense that it's not showing me a great deal more than I already saw in the Harry Potter films. Whereas to go and see it um, in a play or even in a theme park or at the... um, the, the studios. The studio tour, yeah. yes. These are all these different contexts in which you can explore the Harry Potter universe in slightly different ways. And with Fantastic Beasts, it's set in New York, so that's a 1920s New York, so it's a different setting. But for me, there was still this sense that um, it wasn't giving me enough that was new. That's a really good point, because there's all the fan outrage when things don't quite match up. And I always think that's quite puzzling because there's no written law that there has to be cohesion between versions of things. There's no reason why you wouldn't remake everything again from a different perspective. But I wonder if what kind of driving out here is that people that are authoring fantasy texts, children's fantasy texts or horror texts, kind of need to keep being imaginative with how it progresses. And... If we're going to be very negative about Fantastic Beasts, you might say it's quite an unimaginative way of extending the the story in some respects because it's it's going over ground that's kind of known and it has to stick to that line. I suppose there'll be deviations here and there, but the controversy about the snake that's going to turn up and the kind of origin of that, which has repercussions for how people read the books... Um, Shall we clarify, in case case listeners don't know, that um, in a new trailer recently it was revealed that the snake known as Nagini in the Harry Potter books was originally an Asian woman, which... Has issues. Has issues, yes. Um, So lots of people who were excited about this, uh, the representation of an Asian woman in the film are now disappointed that it actually turns out that she's a snake who's enslaved to Voldemort, which is... 
valid for her lifetime. Yes. And to kill, to kill victims. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But it seems a stumbling block to that is the fact it got embedded back into the kind of folklore of Harry Potter. That that opportunity for her to be a standalone character and have points of interest independent of anything that had gone before has kind of been bypassed because she's written into something that already exists. And I think if that happens too much, it starts to become a bit of an issue because nothing is new, nothing is unknown. And that kind of prequelization of films and, and books and novels also reduces down the potential for, for variation. So what I'm basing is I agree with you. I think having a, having a theatre piece or having that um, experience of visiting the sets actually does it from a completely different angle because the set tour doesn't replicate the experience of the films. It gives you a very different perspective on the artifice rather than the kind of the thing on screen. Uh, and, and getting to see these things up close and personal, seeing details that you wouldn't be able to see in the films and that pleasure of inserting yourself into the sets and just being able to imagine that you're the one who's there at Hogwarts. Yes. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah, <laughs> very important. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I suppose we ought to be wrapping up. So thank you to us for talking to each other. And uh, yeah, we'll finish there.